0: one thing that they've found is that when you confine or detain youth who are, you know, again, facing these really low level issues for the most part that are not appropriate for detention, just putting them in detention is actually the number one factor that can lead them to get involved in the juvenile justice system or even more broadly in the criminal justice system in the future.
1: voir conversations from the criminal justice policy program at harvard law school i'm your host skylar dom and this week i'm talking to nila bala and jesse kelly of the r street institute about the juvenile justice system the juvenile justice system can seem something like a world of its own and so we're going to start off by talking about what the juvenile justice system looks like and how it might be different from the adult criminal system and then we're going to talk about some policy reforms that Ms. bala and Ms. kelly have been working on like laws to raise the age at which uh, kids are tried in adult courts, or eliminating status offenses for juveniles. So here's our conversation. I thought we could start with just some basics and talk a little bit about what the purpose of the juvenile justice system is, because it strikes me it might be a little bit different than the adult system.
0: I think that's absolutely right. It does have a different goal and a different view. So while the criminal justice system overall has a number of goals, including retribution, rehabilitation, um, you know, deterrence. You can think of, there. I think there's four or five pillars, depending on who you talk to, um, that the criminal justice system on the adult side looks at. But really, when we're talking about the juvenile justice system, the Supreme Court's laid out law over the years that indicates rehabilitation really should be the, the primary goal, the idea that youth can be rehabilitated and can then later become productive members of society.
2: Yeah, it, youth are inherently different. Their cognitive systems are working in a different way than adults. So it's very important that we have a space for them within the criminal justice system where they can be treated in a way that they understand best what's happening to them.
1: So you actually struck on my next question, which is how much does an awareness of sort of developmental differences between, or inherent differences between youth and adults actually play into the system and its purposes? It's really been an
0: evolving evolving issue over the last, I would say, 10 to 15 years, because prior to that, there wasn't as much of an understanding of the neuroscience and the developmental differences between youth and adults. And really, we see the emergence of that with the Roper case in 2005, which made the death penalty unconstitutional to place on juveniles, on people under 18. And that was really the first moment where the court acknowledged that there were these Differences in the way the frontal develop, frontal lobe was developing in youth, the way the brain was developing in youth, and before that, if you ask, you know, fourteen or fifteen or sixteen year old if they knew the difference between right or wrong, most parents will tell you yes, they do know the difference between right or wrong. But there's something that happens um, when they are in the throes of making poor decisions and they become more impulsive and more aggressive and more likely to, again, make poor decisions compared to adults. And that has to do with the fact that their frontal lobes haven't caught up to the rest of their brain essentially. And that only really happens by 25 or so.
2: So in the juvenile system, there is a mechanism set up where the interest of the child is protected as well as what the child wants. And that takes place in the function of a guardian ad litem versus the child's attorney. In some jurisdictions, you'll have this individual be the same person, and in others, you'll have two different people, but you're looking at the child as a holistic person, um, which is different than what you would do, I think, in the adult system, because you're only going to be advocating what your adult client wants to do. Um, whereas in a juvenile system in front of a judge, you're taking into account what's in the best interest of the child.
1: Okay. So that's the, the sort of, just, just to clarify that. So adult uh, defense attorneys are ethically obligated to operate, uh, it, to achieve this, what's called the stated interest of their clients. So whatever they say, but if in it sounds like if you're an attorney for a juvenile Um, person accused of a crime, then in some cases, you can kind of override that stated interest if you think that the best interest of the child is different than their stated interest. Is that right?
0: Well, so uh, actually, sometimes it plays out in a different way. So In cases, at least in in my experience uh, representing children, in cases where the two things clash, meaning the best interests of the child and what the child wants clash, as the child's advocate, and again, this depends state by state, but in many states... You would do what the child wants, and what you would do is essentially declare to the court a conflict between your two functions. If you are supposed to also be uh, looking at the best interests of the child, and then the court would have to se- separate the two and represent a separate person to be the guardian in Atlanta. But it really depends on the jurisdiction. But when I was um, in Connecticut, that was a situation I was representing a, a, a young man, a sixteen-year-old boy, who um, what 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 he wanted was essentially. Not in his best interest and so the the problem with that as you can imagine is once you declare to the court that what you're going to be saying may not be in the child's best interest you can you can see why the judge's eyes might glaze over or their ears may become quickly shut to, to your pleas and um, to what you're asking for but
1: it's it's really jurisdiction dependent the the role of the attorney out of curiosity what was the difference in the best interest versus stated interest of the 16-year-old you represented in Connecticut.
0: Sure. And just to be clear, uh, that was a child I was representing on the dependency side, but he was also facing charges. What does that mean? Sorry. Sure. So, So children can interact with the system in two separate ways, through the delinquency system or the dependency system. The dependency system is for children who have been abused or neglected. So there's not necessarily a crime or anything that's being alleged. And the delinquency system is where there has been some conduct, whether it's a criminal or sometimes honestly non-criminal conduct that's problematic, that's being brought before the court. And as you can imagine, we have a lot of youth that are considered what is called crossover youth meaning they are involved in both systems. So they have some issues with um, family not being able to take care of them or someone not being in a position to take care of them because of neglect or abuse allegations. And they also allegedly have committed some crime. And mm-hmm. so when you have a youth who's, who's in both systems, you might have five or six attorneys mm-hmm. in the room. Um, you, you're going to have the prosecutor... Again, that would be on the criminal side, you would have their public defender, you would have the child's attorney on the dependency side, and then potentially you could also have this guardian ad litem. And they're all doing different things in that room. And so the case that I was sort of referencing was a case where it would have been in his best interest to um, perhaps be in some kind of residential treatment center, but that's not what he wanted. And so that's where the, the clash could come into play, where an attorney who really needs to advocate for a client's wishes and desires, regardless of whether it's really ultimately in their best interests, is going to be advocating for something different than a person in the guardian ad litem role, whose job is to really look at the best interests of the child. When you have a very young child, those two things essentially become the same thing. When you have an infant or you know, a toddler, the best interests and the child's wishes are not going to be very different, especially when that child is nonverbal. But as a child becomes older, you can imagine how those two things will start to diverge.
1: Yeah. Talking now about the process of the juvenile justice system, if you could compare like law and order or you know, people listening to this are probably most familiar with the, uh, what an adult court looks like, um, what process is different for juveniles?
2: Generally when you're working with adults what you think of is the adversarial criminal justice system where you have a defense attorney pitted against a prosecutor and that is diminished in a in a juvenile justice setting the prosecutor and the defense attorney are much more open to working together and figuring out what's best for the child both attorneys have the ability to sort of speak with the judge openly and it's less of a of a punishment influenced decision and more of a rehabilitative and how can we help set this child back on the right track to be a meaningful member of society.
1: Sorry, Nilla, were you going to say something? I was
0: just going to say it's interesting also to look at the history of how the juvenile justice system started and where it is today. And it really came out of this reform movement to try to take care of these orphan children or these street children. And the first juvenile justice court system, as, as you may be familiar with, started in Cook County in Illinois. And w- when we ha- when we look at the nascence of the juvenile justice system, it really does come out of this um, more paternalistic sort of child welfare model. And so when we look at the earliest Supreme Court cases on this on the juvenile justice system at all, they were really starting to define what kind of process or procedure should take place, given that these are children and that the goals of the system are different. But ultimately, what happened, what started to happen was very problematic. And what the Supreme Court called in one of its earliest cases, the worst Of both systems because what was happening was juveniles weren't getting hearings they weren't being informed of the charges against them their parents weren't being looped in they didn't have attorneys and they would get these really harsh sentences again under this paternalistic guise that oh we'll really rehabilitate them with these long sentences um you're probably familiar with this flagship case in Ray Galt. It happened, I believe, in the 60s, and and it's it was a case where Jerry Galt had made a lewd phone call. He was this 15-year-old, and he got a seven-year sentence, and if an adult had done that, the max would have been 60 days at, at that time, and it's a really fascinating case study because you know, the NPR, I believe, did an interview with um, with Mr. Galt 40 years after the case, and he explained that he had no idea what the charges were, his parents were never called in, and there was no hearing. I mean, there was just really no process. And so things have certainly changed since then. So since then, what do we have? We have attorneys for children. We have um, actual hearings in courtrooms. Juveniles have to be informed of the charges they're facing and the maximum penalties, Um They have to be proven, those charges, beyond a reasonable doubt. That's another thing that wasn't always the case. Um, There were cases where beyond, or excuse me, a preponderance of the evidence, which, again, listeners might be familiar with as being the standard that's typically used in civil cases, sort of that 51%, 49% kind of standard being enough to put a child in a detention center or remove them from a home. So that was no longer Okay. Uh, The Supreme Court said, no, we really need to have these standards be similar to the adult system because they're facing very serious penalties when they are adjudicated delinquent. So what's different? Well, they don't get the juries. Uh, Like I said, there's a relaxed process, meaning the rules of evidence and sort of a lot of the procedure you might see in a typical courtroom are relaxed, uh, again, because it's a judge who's weighing the evidence. So for you to say, please ignore this evidence because it's prejudicial, even though you just heard it. When it's a judge on the bench, it's a little bit of a more difficult argument to make. And uh, the, as Jesse was saying, the goals are really about rehabilitation. And so the parties in the courtroom, the prosecutor, defense attorney, and judge might be working together in a pretty different way than what you see on law and order. It's it's going to be a more
1: relaxed setting. And um, Jesse, you mentioned something earlier, I'm not going to get the language exactly right, but around. The, or what I took away from it, is there are some times where the juvenile justice system is an opportunity for a kid to kind of restart or can, can be a, a positive intervention in their life. Was that what you meant? And, and do you have an example of that in mind of, of a time where it's actually worked well?
2: Um, Yes, that is absolutely what I meant. And one of the ways that that's demonstrated in the juvenile justice system is through the difference in probation. So when you think of probation, you may think of the adult probation and parole system, but there's actually a completely separate juvenile court probation system um, by which juveniles are meeting one-on-one with a probation officer. And it is the goal of that officer to, of course, make sure that they're following all the rules of the court and they're attending school. They're not being true, but they're also there to help serve as a mentor and as a guide to get them through the probation process in a much different way than what adult probation officers do. Um, An example in my work of someone who has been really successful going through that process um, was a young man who was 17 when he came in, um, came in to juvenile probation. And um, he left having received his GED and he went on to community college. And and that was inspired almost completely by his uh, juvenile probation officer because she knew that it wasn't a conversation that he was having in his family unit. And so she encouraged him to, to apply and helped him get the applications, which is a step above and beyond what adult probation officers would be doing for, yes. for the people that are working. <laughs> um, but then that also brings us to a topic that Nilla and I are pretty passionate about um, called raise the age. Mm-hmm. So there are five states which still don't allow Uh, 17-year-olds to be part of their juvenile court system. And and Nila and I are hoping to reform um, some of those laws so that we can have those 17-year-olds benefit from that personal experience uh, like this individual had with his probation officer.
1: And um, what's at stake when a 17-year-old is tried in adult court as opposed to a juvenile court? Well,
0: a whole lot is at stake. For one thing, they aren't going to be able to get the benefits of this rehabilitative system that we've been describing. When you're 17, I mean, we can all think back to when we were 17. For most of us, we were still in high school. And so if you are in the adult system, you're not going to get the same educational benefits either. Juvenile justice um, facilities are equipped to Have children be in school because they're serving children, and that's definitely something that's going to be missing on the adult side. There's also specialized mental health and drug treatment programs that are geared towards youth with an eye on adolescent development that children who are placed in the adult system are not going to have access to. Um, Children in the adult system are incredibly, incredibly vulnerable as well to physical and sexual violence, um, both from fellow inmates as well as staff. Um, they have been assessed to be probably the group behind bars that is most vulnerable uh, to sexual assault, unfortunately. And children who are um, in adult facilities are also the most uh, likely, unfortunately, to commit suicide. So it's incredibly detrimental to their physical and mental health. And then, of course, coming out of the adult system isn't a pretty picture either if you're a child, most children are, are going to come out of, of jail, prison, whatever facility they're placed in, even if we're thinking of some of the more violent and serious offenses, especially in light of the Supreme Court's recent rulings that mandatory life without parole is unconstitutional for youth. So then we're really practically talking about all youth. And what is the world that they are coming out to face? When youth who are in the adult system come out, they're coming out with adult criminal convictions. That means they're on their record for the rest of their life in many states. And they are going to get in the way of being able to get student loans, housing, jobs, um, pretty much all of the opportunities that we would think you would need to get back on your feet and be able to reenter society. So putting children, 17 year olds, and sometimes children even younger, certain states have, mechanisms in place like transfer, direct file, uh, waiver systems that are ways to get children even as young as 10 or 11 or 12 into the adult system, which you can definitely imagine is a system that is certainly not equipped for
1: children that young. Wow. Okay. So there's a lot baked into that, which is great. So back to the question of, of raise the age. I I, I imagine that the pushback to, uh, movements to raise the age from 16 or 17 um, would be around, you know, kids who have been accused of doing uh, really violent or scary stuff. And I wonder what your response to that is. You know, if a if a 16 year old commits a, a heinous murder, should they be tried as an adult or how how should that look?
2: So it's our opinion that raise the age should include everyone, no matter of the crime, but that there will be prosecutorial discretion to move children who have committed these heinous crimes to the adult system if the prosecutor feels that that's necessary for justice to be served. Um, and, and what we've actually seen is the biggest pushback from states is, is not so much this issue, but the proposed costs of what it would be to the juvenile court system to include this bunch of individuals um, that's not already included. We've seen cost studies come out in Michigan um, and Connecticut, and We've also seen states that have raised the age um, not meet these cost studies. So there's some... Meaning
1: that it wasn't as expensive as they thought it was going to be.
2: Correct. Yes. Um, so so that's a, an argument that we've been making in states that are, are pushing back on us about, about costs.
1: Interesting. Um, on the question of prosecutorial discretion to move kids from the juvenile to the adult system based on the sort of nature of the crime they're accused of. I wonder if, I mean, that just takes my brain immediately back to like the 90s and the sort of super predator phenomenon where people sort of were characterizing marginalized youth, uh, particularly youth of color, as being sort of these like hyper dangerous beings. And I just wonder if you worry about falling into that trap. Uh, I guess prosecutorial discretion is, to me, the most dangerous when something really heinous happens, because that's the time where they're really most likely to be subject to sort of political pressure. Um, So I don't know. I wonder about that, the argument that that seems to me the place at which discretion should be the most cabined.
0: Yeah. Skylar, sorry sorry to interrupt um, this train of thought. I want to hop back to like the last question and sort of what we articulated on that. Um, Can we go back there for a second? Because I think just saying prosecutorial discretion doesn't completely capture what we're doing. So in response to your question about the raise the age issue and well, what about the, you know, sixteen or seventeen year olds who are committing really violent, heinous issues. When we're talking about raise the age, we're just talking about the policy of automatically considering seventeen year olds as adults, no matter what. So the seventeen year old who is trespassing or urinating in public is prosecuted as an adult, the same as the 17-year-old who is accused of a more serious felony. And we think across the board, considering all these 16 or 17-year-olds as adults is just a bad policy. It's bad for the youth, it's expensive, it actually increases recidivism to put 17-year-olds in the adult system, because again, they don't get the services they need, and it's ultimately not good for society or for taxpayers But in terms of your issue with what about these really violent offenses, what I would say is there might be instances where it's appropriate, either through prosecutorial discretion and judicial oversight, to move some youth at some point into the adult system. But it really should be the exception and not the rule. And here's why. It shouldn't just be about what crime they commit if you, I mean, we can look at the news and we can see that there have been children as young as nine, eight, 10, 11, who have unfortunately been accused of murder. And there has been talk of transferring them to the adult system simply by virtue of the fact that the charge is murder. But of course, when we think about a 10 or 11 or 12 year old and their culpability, we can't just think about the crime in terms of what system would best serve them. And just using a mechanism that looks at the crime that they've been accused of committing would be inappropriate because they might still be able to be best served by the juvenile justice system. There was a youth who was accused of murdering his father's uh, girlfriend. This, I believe, was in Florida when he was 11. And he actually is now in his Uh, early 20s. And he's in college. And there was a lot of discussion about moving this youth into the adult system. And luckily, uh, he was actually Placed in the juvenile justice system. He was a fifth grader who loved Harry Potter. Yes, he was accused of murder, but he was able to play football in his juvenile justice uh, facility. They had a high school football team. And he's now, as far as I can tell, doing well. He's in college. He hasn't committed any, any other crimes. So I think when we're talking about which children should be in the adult system, it's complicated. And it. It certainly um it certainly should not be a decision that's taken lightly.
1: Yeah, I mean I think I think the question about discretion still stands and the po- the problem with discretion is that it's such a case by case situation um but yeah, I hear you that it's that the the default should be um that the default should not be to be tried in adult court. I guess that makes sense. Absolutely.
0: Um, Definitely go back to the prosecutorial discretion issue though cuz I, I agree with you that if we're talking about a system that has that in place to any degree, we have to really think about how do, how do we deal with that? How do we cabin it? When is it appropriate?
1: Let's talk a little bit about status offenses. Um, can you just describe what a status offense is and what they would be for juveniles?
0: Absolutely. So a status offense, broadly defined, is a an act that is criminal just because you are a certain age or a certain status. So a status offense for a juvenile, examples would be curfew violations, truancy, possessing tobacco or alcohol, essentially all offenses that if an adult committed them, they wouldn't be criminal at all. And the reason why status offenses are important to to discuss is because The JJDPA, which was a piece of federal legislation passed in the 70s and 80s, essentially stated that children should not be detained, should not be jailed for status offenses. We should figure out alternative ways of addressing these issues. And an amendment to that act in 1984 said the exception is if there was a valid court order, meaning if a judge said to the child, I am ordering you to go to school, and the child did not go to school, they would be in violation of a valid court order, a VCO. And that would be a mechanism under the JJDPA, the Juvenile Justice Delinquency Prevention Act, that federal piece of legislation I was was mentioning earlier that that child could then be detained could be jailed for not going to school or not following their probation officer's orders or not going to a mental health appointment or whatever the judge decided was a valid court order. Now unfortunately children are still being detained for this. A lot of states are getting better about not detaining youth for this because they've found It's not the most effective way to deal with these issues. Often these issues stem from mental health issues or from problems at school. They're not really issues that should be dealt with by the delinquency system. But unfortunately, the most recent statistics still show that two-thirds of youth who are in detention are there for nonviolent offenses. Many of them are status offenses or these violations of these VCOs or valid court orders. What's the cost of this? there definitely are costs and when i think about costs i think about all the different kinds of costs the costs on the individual's well-being the costs on the taxpayers the costs on society the costs on that child's family their schooling everything and there there are high costs when you place a child who doesn't really need to be in a confinement type facility <coughs> in confinement one thing that they've found is that when you confine or detain youth who are, you know, again, facing these really low level issues for the most part that are not appropriate for detention, just putting them in detention is actually the number one factor that can lead them to get involved in the juvenile justice system or even more broadly in the criminal justice system in the future. And we can guess that there could be a couple of reasons for this. One, you're interrupting um, schooling, their their sort of family and support network and all the things that, you know, help people generally succeed. Um, another issue is you're taking youth who are generally not, you know, criminal or delinquent and maybe placing them with higher level offenders who might have more criminogenic profiles. And they, as a result, again, are very subject to peer pressure and may become more caught up in that system just from the youth that they're surrounded with so so there could be a number of reasons why we see children who enter the system again from what you probably heard before the school to prison pipeline or you know these low-level status offenses getting caught up and having more issues from being detained rather than less issues um and then, of course, there are, there are costs to their schooling. Schooling is interrupted. Um, education and in juvenile justice systems are notoriously very bad. Um, when they come out, they are often stigmatized or labeled in a different way. And that can lead to more offending because they don't feel included in society anymore. Um, it can be very negative for their families. One thing I've been thinking about and writing about recently are the effects of juvenile administrative fines and fees on families. So, for example, in many counties, if your child gets detained or locked up, you can be charged for that every day. I mean, one county charges families $150 a day for every day that their child is detained. Mm-hmm. And to mention probation fees, drug testing fees, all these fees that just add up to thousands of dollars. In Sacramento County, when California was still doing this, the average was like close to $5,000 for when a youth was detained. And so you can imagine that can be pretty severe on um, a poor, indigent family, which let's be honest, most of the children in the system are indigent children of color. And so they're not people of means who are able to pay these large fees and often these large fees create even larger divisions within
1: family, resentment within families. And so, I mean, I can go on and on about the costs. Yeah, that's a. I I I did not realize that that was a thing that was happening. And I mean, fines and fees in the adult context are uh, super problematic. We did an episode with Sarah Zampreen about this, whom I know you know, um, and in the adult context, it's really troubling because if someone can't pay, they should not be punished for that. But in the juvenile context, it's even worse because it's like kids have no ability to pay, so they're being punished for their parents' inability to pay, which is one even one more degree of separation or lack of agency. Um, so I'm really glad you brought that up because i it's shocking
0: it is shocking, and unfortunately, a lot of jurisdictions across the country still do this. They still charge these juvenile administrative fines and fees, and as a result, um, kids can have so many negative collateral consequences from having their licenses suspended, sometimes even before they're eligible for a license, um, to having damage to their credit scores, to having their probation be extended just because. They haven't finished paying these fines and fees, not because of any other reason. And then, of course, worst of all, these these children can get locked up, essentially a debtor's prison for kids. So they can be placed in incarceration because they haven't paid these fines or fees. And, of course, there are similar issues in the adult system as well. I mean, we we can see how poor indigent people are affected by Basically, these money-making issues, both in the pre-trial, pretrial context with bail, but also in the context that I'm alluding to, which would be you know, post-adjudication, where they're dealing with these residual fines and fees from just being in the court system.
1: That's it for our conversation about the juvenile justice system. I've split out a second episode um, that features the end of our conversation, which is about working for a libertarian think tank and working on criminal justice issues and really what the conservative case for criminal justice reform is. So if you're interested, check out that second episode. In the meantime, please remember to rate and review us on iTunes and Stitcher. It's really helpful. And thank you to the folks at the Criminal Justice Policy Program for helping to produce this and the folks at Huntington Bear for composing our theme music. That's it. Thanks.